Amen. Well, it's great to see you this morning. I'm just coming in from the East Campus, and um, back uh, in the day, three, four, a couple of years ago, I guess it was, for the first three years of the East Campus, I would preach here at 915 service, immediately go over to East Campus, and they would be finished with their music at that time, and I'd stand up and preach and then come back over, and just like here, um, I didn't get a chance to really worship with you. I had to just come in and do this. And uh, this year, at least, for the last year, since Doug uh, Osborne has been over there and is doing such a great job, and I just feel like if I were to go over there consistently like that, I'd be just interrupting his ministry. And so, uh, but today was the last day that, uh, that I went as far as all this kind of schedule goes. So when I go back and uh, minister with them and to them, it'll be um, kind of the whole day, whole morning, and probably Doug will be here. We'll do that a couple of times a year. But I wanted to share that with you because, because of that, because I won't be traveling. The whole reason we have the schedule, the weird schedule that we do now, at 9.15 and 10.50 is because of the schedule to have to go back and forth. I don't do that anymore. And so starting in uh, the 1st of August, we're going to go back to our old schedule, which means 9.30 for the first worship and 11 o'clock for this one. Now, I know that, I mean, the deacons came up with that idea. They said, look, there's no, no sense in having those odd times. It's hard to invite people to come. Let's just go back to the old schedule. And, and I, I replied, well, that's when everybody comes anyway, right? <laughs> so I thought I'd throw that out there, not blame it on them. But, um, and so just keep that in mind. And so for most of you, just come the same time. Just ignore that and just come the same time you normally do. Um, Matthew 18. You know, when we think about Matthew chapter 18, this is the passage everybody says. In fact, in just church speak, okay, when you say, wow, you know, you ought to approach that person using Matthew 18, they know kind of what you're talking about, but we often don't do that. You know, we live, as we've said before, in a broken world. In fact, when you think about the plan of salvation, what we get from the Bible, we understand that, that God's original design was for us to have a relationship with him, and really also on, on top of that is to be sinless. But we're not going to be sinless, are we? You know, God's design was for us to be with him and live with him forever. But then, if you look at a second circle, we look and say, well, there's brokenness. How did that brokenness really take place? Well, the brokenness took place because of sin. The Bible says that Adam and Eve created in the Garden of Eden. They sinned against God, and by one sin, uh, sin entered the world. And so death by all men came down to us. We have all sinned every single one of us. And because of that, we go through brokenness in our life, broken homes, broken lives, broken families, just name it, it's broken. Well, Jesus comes along, he dies on the cross for our sins. And because of that, he came to fix and to heal our brokenness. But if we can just throw that, uh, just keep that uh, little diagram up there for, for me, please. Yes. And so we've come to the cross. We've received Jesus into our heart. And now we're going back to God's design. There's a journey there. We're on this last little circle going up, this last little arrow on the left-hand side. That's where we are today if you're a believer in Christ. You're going that direction, and you're becoming more and more, and more like Jesus, calling, calling it, the Bible calls it sanctification. That's where you're going. But you're not there yet. You're not back to God's original design which really is perfection, because the Bible says we're still going to sin. We're going to fall short of the biblical standard, and that's just because the old nature just keeps pulling back us, pulling us back in. And the Bible says that, as we said last week, temptation is inevitable in our life. And therefore, 
sometimes we uh, yield to that temptation. So what happens then? What happens when we, a, a Christian brother gets, in a sense, broken, broken on the inside? What happens? This whole passage in Matthew 18 is really about compassion, compassion for the one that has gone astray. It's set up in Matthew 18, 12, where it says, Jesus says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and in the mountains and go and search for the one that went astray? This is that, that one. You got a hundred sheep, you leave the 99 with the shepherd boy and the shepherd dogs. You keep, make sure they're, they're taken care of. It's not that the one that's gone astray is more important than the other 99. It's just that that's the need. And he pursues the one that has gone astray. And he says, you as a church need to do the same thing. You see, when, once we come to know Christ, God keeps convicting us of things in our life. He does it through the Bible. He does it through prayer. And he does it through a community called the church. And we as the church are to be close enough to one another that we point out one another's blind spots and point out when we've gone astray to bring us back into the fold. Now, when you know when somebody sins against you or somebody sins, period, and you know about it, there's three ways that you can really go about handling the situation. You can talk about it. You know, you talk about it to somebody else. Well, am I feeling the right way? Am I doing this? And one person tells another person, pretty soon there's speculation going on and all kinds of disunity and disharmony. Or you can do nothing. So often that's what we do. Well, I just, I hate that happened. You know, I hope they're going to be all right. I'll pray for them. And we don't do anything at all. We can do one of those two things, or we can do what Jesus instructed us to do in verse 15. Let's read it. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses." If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. You say, wow, that's tough stuff. Man, that's confrontation. No wonder people tend not to do anything at all. Nobody really wants to be this confrontational. And yet, we have to have accountability in our lives we have to have something going on in our life and a process or something to bring us back to the fold instead of just out there somewhere. And so God gives us the instruction. But there's all kinds of questions here. You know, who, who needs to do it? How close do you need to be to the person? I mean, does that mean every sin? Suppose somebody just says something bad about you. You go to them and they just say, well, I didn't say it. You, you ought to bring them to the church. Well, what about that? When should, when should you do that? How far should you go? Well, let's look at these questions. I want to look at three things in this passage. One, the process of restoration, because that's what the passage is about. It's about restoring, about forgiving. In fact, next week we'll talk about forgiveness. Uh, last week we talked about going out after the one. Now this is the, the passage in between on how to do it, how to do it. The process, the purpose, and then the profit. First of all, the process. Really, there's four things here, and they're pretty self-explanatory, just listed right there. Anybody can pull them out of this passage pretty easy. First of all, it says, if your brother, that's the first thing, consider your brother. This is not just anybody. This is a, fe a fellow believer in Christ. This is someone that has reached out and, and, and taken the Holy Spirit within their life, taken Christ in their life, just like you. Not just anybody, it's a brother 
in Christ. And therefore, fellowship here is encouraged, not only encouraged, it's implied here. In fact, you really have to have this. I mean, how in the world can you confront somebody? Somebody comes along and says, well, man, I know that brother did something they shouldn't have done, but I don't even know him. I don't know him. You see, fellowship is more than just simply coming to church, sitting around a bunch of people. Gene Getz has said before, he said, uh, there's really three um, uh, levels of fellowship. One is simply face-to-face. You meet somebody. You stand up and say, hey, let's turn around and greet one another. And so you're looking at somebody and you recognize their face. Maybe you've been sitting beside them every Sunday for weeks. There's hand-to-hand is the second thing. That's when you're kind of like on a name basis with somebody and you're even kind of would consider them maybe a friend. Maybe you go to a small group with them. But heart-to-heart means that I can share most things with this person. They can share most things with me. The problem is we, we all want a heart-to-heart friend. You know, it's just like uh, the old sitcoms. I remember just pops into my mind, King of Queens, where the guys used to meet in the garage and watch TV together. Everybody's got these three or four friends, heart-to-heart kind, kind of friends around them because that's desirable thing in sitcoms and it's funny. They can interchange with one another. But we all desire that heart-to-heart, but it doesn't come right away. You've got to go face-to-face, hand-to-hand, and then you finally get heart-to-heart with a certain group of people. And so it implies a fellowship. Fellowship is more than just going to a small group. It's more than just playing golf together and having dinner together. It's, it's really getting down to the Holy Spirit and what he's doing in your life. So it implies that. Consider your brother. Well, then it says, clarify. Secondly, clarify the situation. Now, as you're clarifying the situation, it talks here about having an attitude of compassion. First of all, he says, if your brother sins against you, go to him and tell him his fault. Well, what kind of attitude should we have? Verse 27, it says this, and we'll talk more about this part next week. And out of pity for him, considering your brother, out of pity, this word is a special Greek word of compassion, and it has to do with empathy. I'm putting myself in the place of my brother. I'm gonna, I want to know how he feels about it. I mean, he's, he's sinned against me, but what was he going through? You know, sometimes people will talk to me and I say, well, yeah, but what was he thinking? Do you think he was thinking, oh, you're just taking his side. I'm not taking his side. I'm just saying you really can't get through this until you take pity, until you look at somebody else's side of the story, and that's what they're talking about here, an empathy as you go to them and clarify the situation. Then it talks about doing so in gentleness. There's a companion verse to this, I think, in, in uh, Galatians 6.1. I think it's a companion verse. Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. A gentle spirit. So you're going to the person, considering your brother, you're going to clarify the situation, not muddy it up, clarify the situation in a spirit of gentleness. I mean, sometimes, you know, you go to somebody, for example, and you want to vent. I mean, they've wronged you, and you want to let them know it, right? I mean, you do. You just want to let them have it, and you let them have it. Is anything wrong with that? Well, it just depends. You do it in a spiritual a spirit of gentleness, and you may have to get it off your chest, but understand how mature the person is that you're talking to, what kind of relationship you have with that person. And the goal is restoration, 
not revenge or not just making things right in your own mind. But sometimes you do have to tell the person. How gentle do you have to be? How mature is the person? And what is your goal? Your goal is restoration. He says to clarify this situation. Notice what he says in this. He says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. What does that mean? That means privately. That means don't tell anybody else. Now, how would it be if you're coming along and, and you, you're talk, talking to somebody and say, look, you know, I've got something, a bone to pick with you. Can I say that bone, bone to pick with you? Anybody from the South understand what I'm talking about? I've got a complaint. All right. So you go to that person and uh, you say, uh, look, I've only told five or six people before I come to you. Well, that's not going to work out for you, is it? But wonder if you said, look, I want you to know before I talk to you that I've seen something in your life, but I want you to know I've not told anybody else. I tell you what that's going to tell me about you, that you're not after revenge. You're after trying to help me. I'm going to be able to trust you now. Trust you with my thoughts, trust you with my feelings, because if you didn't share this, you're not going to share what I'm about to share with you. Go to them and them alone. Not, okay, I got to tell this person, this person first, and then we'll all just all go together. No, that's not what it says. That's, that's ganging up on someone. You, you don't do that. You go, just one. You say, that's, that's tough. I know it's tough, but it's also tough to carry on a bad relationship for many, many years without doing something about it. So you go to them, you go alone, and you clarify what took place. You get to the truth. I know people that said, you know, I, I want to talk to you about something. I said, okay, let's talk. And he said, well, I want you to know I know the truth already. I said, well, really, I'm, I'm part of that, so you haven't talked to me. So what you're really saying is you know, you think you know the truth. You've perceived to know the truth. Or you speculated to know the truth. I mean, who have you talked to about? Do you clarify the situation? You say, well, look, <clears throat> Pastor, I mean, if somebody does something wrong, I mean, they, don't, don't they deserve a little talking about them, you know, a little gossip? You know, well, I don't think we ought to be judge and jury, but suppose it's not true. Suppose, for example, uh, you were pulling out uh, Citizens Bank right down here in Oviedo. You were backing out of a parking place, and in, in your sight, you could see the door of the bank and the parking lot. And suddenly, before you put it in drive, I shot across the parking lot with two bags in my hand. It looked like money, all right? And uh, I know what you're thinking. Are you going to tie that? No. Uh, you know, you're, you're looking out, and you're running with, I'm running with that money. In fact, I'm running as fast as I can go. I throw it in the back of my car. I jump into my car. I squeal tires off, getting out of the parking lot. And you're thinking, what just, what was that? Then you hear later in the day, a good friend of yours tells you that the, a bank has been robbed in Oviedo. And you immediately say, I know who that was. That was my pastor. My pastor robbed a bank. No. Dwayne Mercer robbed a bank. Yeah, yeah. Citizens Bank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know all about it. I saw him do it. And this person tells another person. This person tells another person. And pretty soon the police come knocking on my door, arrest me. And I get thrown in jail, and later it's proved not true, but my testimony's gone. But what if your friend tells you and say, whoa, I better talk to my pastor about that. So you call me up. We set up a little time that afternoon. You come by and say, look, pastor, I want you to know I haven't told anybody this. But here's what I saw today. And I hear a bank got robbed. Could you explain that to me? What, what was going on? 
And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, no problem. Um, you know, I have a tendency, and I do, have a tendency to just take my change and throw it in a drawer, throw it in a can or whatever. And sometimes they accumulate up. And uh, back in the day, when I had kids at home, at least, uh, they, would, they would get together and, and, and spend the money. They would get together and put the money together and go spend it. So suppose one of my grandkids were here, and uh, I just said, well, what happened was uh, I got all this change, and I got to get some of those roller things, you know, from the bank. And both of those bags were just filled with those empty roller things. And I was going to go home and let them roll the things, which they have. And now they're, they're about ready to take them to the bank and get money for it. And, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. But you were running, man. You were running out of the bank. Well, what happened was I got a call right before I left the bank. I got a call on my cell phone that said somebody had just had a heart attack and went, was rushing to the hospital. And I knew I had to get there as quick as I can. You see, there, there's, there's a truth. There's, there's nothing to report. There's no testimony to lose. Nothing. But suppose you tell someone something and you say, well, yeah, that's, that's true. Then you say, well, they deserve it. They deserve it. I'm, I'm going to go out and I'm going I'm to talk about it. I'm going to vent about it because they did it. Listen, we don't need to be an army that shoots its own wounded. We don't need to multiply the situation. The Bible says go to that person and that person by themselves, privately, and talk to them about it. Well, what's the next step? Notice real quickly, he says, if they don't hear you, he says, if they don't listen to you, and the word listen, by the way, here's has to do with repentance. A word that has to do with you listen enough to where you turn from it. If they don't turn, you said if they turn, you've gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established, and by the evidence of two or three witnesses, if he refuses to listen to them. Now, I go that far with the passage because it says to us, take one or two. Now, Galatians 6.1 tells us to take someone spiritual, someone that's not going to stumble themselves. So you take a couple of guys, a couple of people at the most, maybe just one, that every word may be established. So you each tell your side of the story. We'll just say it's, it's a rift between the two of you. And somebody has wronged you. And so they're, they're there to make every, sure, every word's established, but also to kind of be a little bit of a judge of what needs to go, go take place. That's why they need to be spiritual. They need to be spiritual-minded and having the wisdom of God. And so they look, and they may look at you and say, well, yeah, this person did that to you, but look what you did to them first. Or they may just look at this person and say, yeah, you... You've done this. Now, look, in order to get back right with him, but also back right with God, this is what you need to do. You say, well, when do you do that, Pastor? I mean, you can't do that for everything. And you don't. Because once you've done the first thing, and they don't turn from it, they don't repent, they don't admit anything, sometimes you guys got to let it go. You know, the Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. And we ought to just be able to let it go. Look, I've, I've said my piece. I've tried to bring them back where they need to go. I've tried to bring them back into a relationship with me. It's not going to work out right now. I'll keep praying for them. I'm just going to move on. I need to move on. I can't trust them again in a relationship, but I just, I just need to move on. But sometimes it's bigger than that. So when is it bigger than that? Well, it's when it caused a rift in a relationship that's going to affect the church. You know, sometimes the Bible says, well, actually, the Bible says in John 3, the Holy, nobody knows where the Holy Spirit's going to come next. He may come at any time, any place, and, and pour out his spirit 
where people are going to get saved, people are going to revive, people are going to get concentrated on Jesus, and nobody knows. But he doesn't come, at least I don't see, anywhere in the Bible he's come to a church that's not unified. And so is, is that, that kind of rift? Or two, is it hurting the person himself? I mean, here's a person that's maybe in drugs, or they're in a, a moral relationship, or they're, they're doing something awful in their life, and and you think, oh, you know, they're just going down. They're, they're just simply is just dropped out of church. And they're not getting spiritually fed anymore. You could tell it in their life. Then you bring maybe a couple of guys along with you. Or it's hurting the fellowship of God. They're in the church. They're still in the church. They still have sin in their life. And you just need to deal with it. So then it says, if they don't hear, you go to the last step. Tell it to the church. If you refuse to listen even to the church, let it be known to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Now, bringing to the church, very tough thing, because back in Matthew, there was no church. Jesus was almost really prophesying here about there being a church. But the word church does not mean this. It means a body of called out ones. And Jesus had that. He had the apostles there. He had all of his other followers. The 120 that was there on the day of Pentecost were probably following him around. He probably had a group of 100, 150 people that followed him everywhere he went. That was their gathering. That was their collective body together. And so it applied. But it doesn't mean to bring somebody before a church of, of 2,000 people. It means, in fact, you never go beyond the offense. The confrontation ought to be in the same boundaries, stay within the same boundaries as the offense. If a person is not sinned against the whole church, they don't need to be apologized to the whole church. It needs to stay within those boundaries. And sometimes that's a group of maybe deacons or a group in your small group class that represents the church. He says, take them before the church. And if they don't repent then, treat them Really what he's saying is as a lost person, as that, that one that has gone astray, that one that you need to seek after. Oh, that means you ought to just shun them. Man, just get rid of them. Get them out of the church. Don't have any fellowship with them. That's not how Jesus treated lost people. Jesus treated lost people with a great amount of compassion. But he recognized the fact that this, you deal with a person that's a believer, that has the Holy Spirit living in their heart in one way, and you deal with a person that does not have the Holy Spirit in their heart in another way. You pray for them differently. You say, well, why, why would Jesus make such a statement? Well, listen, this is very consistent with the Bible. Listen to what Galatians uh, 5 has to say. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, revelries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. I warn you, Paul says, I've warned you in the times past. Those who do such things, they practice these things, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's like Tim Keller said, what they're doing when they refuse to repent, they're saying they, they say they're a believer, but deny the gospel that, they're, that, they're, that saved them. So all it's saying here in this passage in Galatians, and what Jesus is saying is if they come to the place, they do these things, or they come to the place where they will not repent, it gives you an indication that the Holy Spirit has never come to live inside their heart. Think about it for just a moment. Here's a sincere brother or sister in Christ comes to a person. 
They said, look, this is, this is where you've gone astray. And they see the blind spot in their life. And they have that defining moment in their life. Yes, I didn't know anybody knew about it. I, I, I just, I know this. In their heart, that's what they're saying. But with their eyes and with their mouth, they're saying something different because they're defending. They don't want to give up what they're doing. And then two others come to them. And you think, oh, my goodness, man, they're doing, what, Matthew 18 on me or something. And you're sitting there and listening. And after these other two listen to you, they, they plead with you. No, you need, you need to repent of this. You're a child of God. This is, this is horrible testimony to God. This is not what God's about. You're denying the gospel that saved you, and he won't listen. And then you bring a, a bigger body, their whole maybe small group, at least the leaders in that small group, or maybe a, a small body of deacons. And you come, yes, we've heard all the sides of the story, and this is what's going on in your life. Don't you know that's going on? Oh, I know what's going on in my life. I know exactly what's happening in my life. But you need to let that go. You need to come back to Christ. I don't want to. Maybe later, not now. I'm going to do what I want to do. I think, I think God will bless it. That comes from the heart of a person that it does not have any sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. So you treat them as a lost person. You try to get them to receive Christ again and pray for them in that way. And so what is the purpose of it all? The purpose... It says in verse 15, if he listens to you, you've gained a brother. You see, the purpose of this is not to vent. The purpose of this is not to punish. The purpose of this is to restore someone back to your relationship with them or restore them back to the faith as well. This lost sheep, you know, it's, it's like, for example, you see, a lot of you have seen the, the TV shows about intervention. How many of you ever seen a show like The Intervention, something like that? So young people may watch it. I, I don't know. I've seen it once or twice. You've got someone that's your brother that's a, uh, addicted to drugs, and they go in, and they have a kind of a thing in their living room, a little meeting, and they try to get this person uh, to commit to a rehab center. Well, suppose they do. They commit to a rehab center, and here's your brother has been gone from the family forever, and all of a sudden, you regain him. You regain him as part of an active part of your family. You've gone after the one that has the need and you brought them back into the fold. So we look at this and we see the prophet of it all involved. The prophet of restoration. First of all, it establishes a standard of holiness for the favor of God in your life and in the life of the church. We've kind of lost that sense of holiness, haven't we? Haven't we? We've said, well, we live by the grace of God. And so therefore, if, if God doesn't say it to me personally, or if Jesus didn't say it personally, or if he didn't say it in this way, or maybe he did say it, but I haven't read it, then I can do it. And I know we, many of us come back from, from legalism, and, and that's a response to that, and we don't want that. But we don't, when we say these are the standards of the Bible teaches, then we don't live by them. The world looks at us as hypocritical. The world laughs at us. So when you and I have an accountability, when I know that somebody I'm close to is going to come to me when they see a blind spot in my life, when they see me going astray somewhere in my life, they're going to come to me. I'm going to be held more accountable to living according to the scriptures. It gives us a standard to live by as the body of Christ. And really, sin in the camp does make a difference. You remember the story, perhaps, of, 
uh, the Israelites going into the promised land and they conquered the city of Jericho and God blessed them. But he said, don't take any of the spoils that he called it, the, the treasures. Don't take any of them. A fellow by the name of Achan took the treasure. He buried it beneath his tent. And the next battle that came up at Ai, it was a very small place really, next to Jericho, the Israelites were defeated. And Joshua goes to God and says, God, what happened? I thought you were going to be with us. He says, They're sinning the camp. And they had to get the sin out of the camp before they get blessed again. And so you and I need to have as a church, these are the things that are going to put us in God's favor, the word of God, and we can hold ourselves accountable for them. But secondly, it gauges our fellowship involvement. You may be saying, well, pastor, I understand what you're saying, these three steps, but I know someone that I need to approach, but I don't know them well enough. Well, then you don't. You know, I mean, if, they, if you go to them and sell, tell them, well, this is, this is what's going on, or this is my relationship, this is what you did to me, and they look at you and say, no, now what's your name? You don't know them well enough. You know, I'm, just, I'm just telling you. So who do you know well enough? Who do you know well enough? You need to know someone well enough that they're able to at least come into your life and just say, look, I want to help you by showing you this. This is a blind spot in your life. You need to be close enough for, to someone that you can do the same thing for them. Because yes, God does convict through the Bible. He does convict through prayer. But he has meant for all the way back to the beginning of time. I mean, again, the Trinity of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God had fellowship within himself before we were ever created. God wants us to have that fellowship. Who do you know well enough? So I challenge you this today about your fellowship. And then finally, we see the restoring of the one lost sheep. We gained a brother. We gained it. So I want to challenge you this morning as we close this message in three ways. One, I want to challenge your fellowship. We all need it. Are you making fellowship, not just playing golf, not just going to church, but real heart-to-heart fellowship, a priority and an intention in your life? Are you hand-to-hand, face-to-face with people? Are you hand-to-hand? Are you heart-to-heart with anyone? Because until you reach that, as you go up this curve and trying to get more like Jesus, you'll never really reach where you need to be without those around you. But then secondly, I want to challenge you today to commit to being a faithful messenger and a loyal member of Christ's family. Consider your brother. For example, I remember back when I was in high school, we decided, some friends of mine decided, and I decided to go to another high school football game. Um, Sister high school there um, near us. Friends of mine played for the team, and so we just thought we'd go. I'm sitting there in the group, and all of us want Johnny um, Allen, our friend, to play quarterback, backup quarterback. He didn't get in. So the guy got in. I didn't know this guy. But the guy beside me just started talking about it. Everybody else kind of did, too. oh, he's not any good. He, you know, he'll never, he'll never amount to anything. I can't even believe they put him in there. So game was over, or near over, we go. And uh, this school was small enough where all the players just sort of came out. So you just said hello to them before you left. And so we did that. And he was talking to a girl. And I wasn't paying attention. I was watching the game. And this guy that they were ragging on finally completed a pass. And so I nudged the guy and said, look at that. He finally completed a pass. The girl turned around and looked at me and said, that's my brother. There was nothing I could do about that. 
No talking your way out of that one, is there? Now, I know you can't. When somebody comes to you and say, let me tell you something about this guy. You can't look and say, that's my brother. You don't want to yell at anybody, all right? That's my sister. Thank you very much for that help over there. But you can say, well, uh, why don't we go to them? Why don't, we, why don't we talk to them together? And I did that. I've done that several times. Most of the time it's worked. I had one guy tell me back in college, well, I thought I could trust you with my gossip. No, he, he didn't say gossip, but pretty much. That's what he was saying. Well, most of the time he'll say, oh, okay, if you'll go with me, sure. That's my brother. That's my sister. And so in order to have unity of the body, we can't just have secrecy going on all the time, by the way. You know, you had that in church. Oh, I'm, I'm just telling you. Don't you tell anybody. Another person over here, I'm just telling you. I'm, don't t- no, nobody's telling anybody anything because we all want to keep a confidence as a friend. But what if that happened in your family? Mom was saying, don't tell dad. Dad was saying, don't tell mom. Brother was saying, don't tell sister. And all these secrets, you've got a secret family, a family of secrets. How about you? Would you be willing to commit to say, you know, I'm not going to gossip. As such in me is, I'm just not, I may not have all the time the courage to go to someone, but I'm at least not going to say anything bad about them. And I'm praying about the courage to get up, get the courage to be that kind of person, be heart to heart with someone and help them. Uh, few years ago, we made a commitment, said something like this, I will not talk about you unless I first talk to you, and then only about you because I love you, only about you to others because I'm bringing them into the mix. But first, I'm going to talk to you. We made that commitment. That helped a lot of you. It really did. If whole, all churches would make this commitment, we would stop a lot of this unity in our churches all around the country, all across the world. Jesus gave this to us as a gift, this whole passage. Would you be willing to say that today? Would you be willing to say, by the grace of God, I will not talk about you until I first talk to you and then only about you because I love you? In fact, let's put this back up on the screen, all right? And let's say this together. Look at it very closely. And you're not talking about just to me or the staff or the leaders. You're just talking about Christians all around you, including, including the people right here in this body, right here in this church. Would you say this with me out loud? Are you ready? You ready? By the grace of God, say that. I will not talk about you unless I first talk to you and then only about you because I love you. Now, that wasn't very strong. I just want to say it wasn't very strong. Now, I'm not asking you to sing it. I'm asking you to say it. Isn't that a good commitment to make to your brother and your sister? Let's say it again. By the grace of God. Let's say it loud. By the grace of God, I will not talk about you unless I first talk to you and then only about you because I love you. God bless you. That's great. That's great. Third challenge real quickly is this. Wouldn't you like, if you're, if you're not, if you're broken on the inside, and you've never received Christ, wouldn't you want to be a part of a group of people who just said that? Who want to help you? 
Wouldn't you want to come to know Christ who died on the cross for you and become a part of that family? If you do, you can be saved today. today. You can invite Jesus to come into your heart. And I want to challenge you to do that right now with heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around. In the quietness of this moment, I'm going to ask you, would you like to receive Christ into your life? You can do so by praying this prayer with me. You can pray it silently as I pray it out loud. Lord God, thank you for a church. A church all across the world that preaches the gospel, teaches the gospel, that Jesus Christ saves sinners like me. And Lord, I confess my sins to you and I bring them to the cross. I ask you to forgive me of everything that I've done. Come into my life. Mold me into the person you want me to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.